this morning, I'm leading in a rather solemn task because our study of the Gospel of Mark has brought us to the very foot of the cross on which Jesus suffered. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all written in a form of ancient Roman biographical literature that doesn't focus on the life and background of their subject like our ordinary biographies do, but rather they focus on the teaching of their subject and frequently focusing on the way in which their subject died. And consistent with this form of literature, all of the gospel writers devote large portions of their bios reflecting on the death of Jesus, each with their own particular emphasis. And this morning, we come to Mark's description and we see how Mark answers his question, who is this son of man? So please stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him and then twisted a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, Come down now from the cross that we might see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, and at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now turning to Psalm 22, reading selected verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in God, they say, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among among them and cast lots for my garment. 
Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, we stand this hour peering into unfathomable truths, gazing into your mind and heart, contemplating realities far beyond our understanding. Yet you have given us your word to guide us, you have given your spirit to illumine us, and would you now, O Lord, give understanding, open our hearts to you and your word, Bless your servant, I pray, with your spirit. Fall on all of us afresh. We pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will have life. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the point of the cross. We come face to face with that most solemn event of all of human history. As believers in Jesus Christ, this passage in Mark and the parallel passages in the other gospel writers should probably be committed to memory and reviewed routinely. This is the culmination of God's witness to all of humanity. Everything in scripture in the Old Testament points to the cross, and everything in the New Testament after it points back to the cross. It is literally the crux of human history. And in the cross, what do we see? We see the love of God. We see reconciliation between fallen, sinful, broken, corrupted humanity and its almighty creator we see the perfect God of the universe humbling himself, taking our place, accepting our judgment, becoming the lowest of the low for us and for our salvation. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if we believe we must hold this close, we must reflect and be changed by it over and over. We must have an ever-deepening vision of our God, arms outstretched, hanging, dying on a cross, in our place. So as we look at this passage this morning, I'd like to consider three points. Let us consider the pain of the cross, 
Let us look at the people of the cross. And finally, let us be confronted by the power of the cross. First, the pain of the cross. On Ash Wednesday 2004, the movie The Passion of the Christ was released in the United States. This movie so graphically depicted the suffering of Christ in his crucifixion that it was given an R rating because of the violence. Jim Caviezel, the actor that played uh, Jesus, was accidentally lashed twice and to this day bears 14-inch scars uh, from the experience. Movie critic Roger Ebert, who was himself a devout Catholic, rated the movie four out of four stars, but he called it the most violent film I have ever seen. Now think about that just for a moment. This is a man who watched literally thousands of movies, but the portrayal of Christ's passion was the most violent thing he had ever seen. The pain that our Lord suffered was nothing short of excruciating, and the movie just simply put it into, a, into modern visualization. We're almost 2,000 years distant from the cruelty of the Romans. It's no longer part of our daily existence. And not only is it not part of our daily existence, we're almost numb to physical violence given its ubiquity in the news, in the internet, in movies, in the media that surrounds us. And so it's worth our time, I believe, to reflect on how incredibly horrible Christ's death truly was from the standpoint of physical pain. In Mark 15, 15, the last verse just before this morning's reading, he writes this, So Pilate, having scourged or flogged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. We can read right past that sometimes. But scourging or flogging was the preliminary step to every Roman crucifixion. And it was so brutal that Roman citizens and women were exempt. The usual instrument was a short whip with several leather thongs of various length in which small iron balls were tied at intervals along with pieces of, of bone. The victim was stripped of his clothing. His hands were tied to an upright post. The back and buttocks and legs were flogged either by two soldiers or one who alternated positions. And the severity of the flogging depended entirely on the attitude of the soldier. But the purpose was always the same, to weaken the victim to a physical condition just short of collapse or death. As the Romans repeatedly struck the victim's back, the iron balls would create deep bruises, the leather thongs and the sheep bones would cut into the skin deeper and deeper. As it continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying muscles and often expose bones and internal organs. Pain and blood loss usually set the stage for circulatory shock and loss of blood probably determined how long a victim would survive on the cross. Now the Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but they certainly perfected it as a form of torture and capital punishment, and it was designed to produce a slow and painful death. It was one of the most disgraceful and cruel methods of execution and usually reserved only for slaves and revolutionaries and the vilest of criminals. The Roman cross typically consisted of an upright post and a horizontal crossbar, and it was customary for the condemned man to carry his own crossbar from the flogging to the place of crucifixion. 
That crossbar would weigh between 75 and 125 pounds and was placed across the nape of the victim's neck, balanced on the shoulders, and the outstretched arms were then tied to the crossbar. The processional to the site was led by a complete Roman military guard, headed by a centurion, frequently meandering through the city to demonstrate to all the citizens that this is how Rome dealt with those who disobeyed. One of the soldiers carried a sign with the charges of the crime, and given the weight of the crossbar and the physical condition of Jesus after the scourging, it's easy to understand the need for someone else to carry his cross. Outside the city walls was permanently located the upright wooden post on which the crossbar was uh, secured. Before the execution, by law, the victim was given a bitter drink of wine as a mild sedative, and then the criminal was thrown to the ground on, the, on his back and his arms were stretched out across the crossbar. The hands were nailed or tied, but apparently Romans preferred nails, spikes five to seven inches long. After both arms are fixed to the crossbar, the crossbar and the victim together are lifted up onto the post and the feet were nailed directly to the front. And when it was complete, the sign was attached just above the victim's head. Length of survival would be three to four hours to three to four days and appears to be related directly to the severity of the flogging. If it was mild, the Roman soldiers hastened death by breaking the legs below the knees. No one was intended to survive crucifixion. The body is not released until the soldiers were certain that the victim had died. By custom, one of the guards would take a lance or a spear and run it through the right side of the chest, a fatal wound taught to every Roman soldier. Brothers and sisters, this is the physical ordeal that our Lord endured on our behalf. We cannot even begin to understand the spiritual agony and the spiritual suffering that Jesus encountered. Never mind the extent and the extremity of the physical suffering. O sacred head now wounded with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns thine only crown. How pale thou art with anguish, with sore abuse and scorn. How does that visage language languish which once was bright as morn? What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinner's gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior, tis I deserve thy place. Look on me with favor. Assist me with your grace. Jesus, in our place, our transgression, his atonement, his deadly pain, ours the gain. And that is the point of the cross. Now let us turn to the people of the cross. First, we see the soldiers. They were the powerful. They were in control. They represented the government authority of Rome this was a world authority that had brought its own militant peace to the ancient world, the Pax Romana, enforced by a military that none had seen or witnessed to that point in world history. The soldiers stood under the command of Pilate. They were hard. They were war-weary. 
They were cold-hearted. Each one of them had seen death up close. They themselves were the mechanism of inflicting injury and death on their fellow human beings. Theirs was simply to do what was commanded. There was no choice in the matter. It was the discipline of the legion. And the discipline of the Roman legion led to absolute power. And as we know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. There was not much in the way of entertainment for the Roman soldier, so the opportunity of an execution provided a good diversion from otherwise empty hours of, of military obligation. As we noted, the Roman soldiers first flogged Jesus, but maybe it wasn't quite daylight yet. Jerusalem wasn't fully awake for the day. Maybe there was time to kill. His crime is being the king of the Jews. We should honor him. His clothing is not worthy of a king. He should, he should be in purple. That's the color of royalty. And he needs a crown. Hey, I got a crown. I, I made it. I, I, I got a crown right here. I made it out of these thorn bushes. That'll work. On a scepter. I, I got a stick that'll do just fine. Hail, king. Hail, Caesar. And Mark tells us that they hit him with a stick and they spit on him, kneeling and bowing. And finally, as with all bullies, they grew tired of their sport or maybe they simply wanted to get on with their assignment. So they put his clothes back on him and led him out to crucify him. And once at the place for executions, they offered him the wine and our Lord rejected it in choosing instead to be fully conscious. And then the soldiers on the crucifixion detail divvied up whatever Jesus had, a pair of sandals, a tunic maybe, a cloak, but when it came to his outer garment, it was such a nature they opted instead that only one should get it, and so they cast lots to see who would get what. And so the powerful, the secular military, moves off of Mark's scene. The Romans have played their part in his story. The next group that Mark describes are the passers-by. It's the crowd, the nondescript gathering of those with idle curiosity. And we know this crowd. Wherever there's an ambulance, a fire truck, a police car, we just can't help ourselves. We have to see what's going on. Personally, I hate this aspect of human behavior, particularly on the Garden State Parkway when the problem is in the other lane. No need to slow down, nothing to see here. It's on the other side, keep going. But it's real, we know it's real. And that crowd was there that day. They couldn't help themselves. And what does Mark tell us? They went by wagging their head, shaking their head and saying to Jesus, so you're gonna destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Well, you know, come down from the cross and save yourself. They had heard Jesus' words. In John chapter two, we learned that the temple that Jesus was talking about was his own body. And indeed, it was for their salvation he was on the cross. For Jesus to have come down as the passers-by suggested, he would have indeed saved himself and the world would have been lost. And only by laying down his life could any of the passers-by come to new life. The passers-by never got a clear look at what was truly happening. Either they went by too quickly 
They weren't looking in the right direction. They didn't see what was actually unfolding before their eyes, and they went on their way, passing by with their idle curiosity for the next spectacle, never grasping the truth of what they saw. Now Mark next references a third group. It's the chief priests and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and they too were marking, mocking, but Mark notes that they were doing this amongst themselves. Now there's a certain arrogance to this, isn't there? Um, they're not even addressing Jesus directly. This was the super spiritual club only talking to themselves, gloating at their success in getting Jesus executed and congratulating themselves. He saved others, they, he, they said to themselves. He can't even save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of the Jews, come down from the cross. Then we'll believe. No, they wouldn't. They'd seen Jesus' miracles. They'd seen his healings. They'd even seen and heard of people being raised from the dead, and they didn't believe. There was no intellectual honesty here, just self-righteousness and pride. But the irony is this. The Pharisees were exactly right. Jesus did save others, and he was not saving himself. And it was precisely by not saving himself that he was entirely saving others, including us. So even as the crowd didn't see, the Pharisees were blind as well. But the great tragedy of the Pharisees and the priests is they had access to the scriptures and chose not to acknowledge the scripture's truth. Lastly, we see the pitiful and the persecuted, the thieves who were crucified with Christ. Mark reports that even they, being executed, the bottom, the lowest of society, even they heaped insults on Jesus. They were being executed for crimes duly committed and justly convicted. They were the greatest sinners. No penalty of death, no penalty other than death was worthy of their crimes. And these two thieves, and don't think cat burglars here, think thugs. This is the guy that holds a knife or a gun on a victim and then just for grins breaks some bones along the way. These were two genuine miscreants. And they too would have been flogged and nailed to their respective crosses and were no doubt in pain themselves. But their response to Jesus, just like the chief priests, just like the Pharisees, just like the crowd, is to revile Jesus and to mock and curse and reproach. Even the pitiful and the justly prosecuted have no use for Jesus on the cross. So what is Mark trying to show us by calling out these four groups of people? Mark has drawn two comparisons. One, between the powerful, those in control of society, and those who are part of the crowd, at the general idle curious. And on the second comparison, he compares between the super-religious and the super-sinner. And in so doing, he encompasses all of humanity everyone in power and authority, to those who are just part of the crowd, and in the context of the religious, everyone from the super spiritual, the top of the spiritual crowd, to the sinner himself. All of humanity does not see the truth of what's happening before their eyes.
And I have to ask, do you find yourself in any of the groups that Mark describes? Do you stand with the powerful, assured of your economic and social standing, utterly bored with life, just looking for a diversion to create some interest? Are you in the crowd, seeing a man that looks misguided, confused, dying a forgotten death? Or are you very comfortable and confident in your religious belief without any regard for what Jesus has to say? Or do you find yourself in pain, suffering the consequences of previous decisions and simply insulting Jesus because you hurt as much as you do? My friends, if you identify with any of these groups, we would so love to speak with you this morning and to share what Jesus was doing on that cross. For it is truly wonderful. His death changed everything, and there is power in the cross. So let me turn now to the final point, the power of the cross. In a few minutes, we'll sing a song of response that says this in the refrain, this is the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath, we stand forgiven at the cross. And that beautifully expresses our understanding of what Jesus did in his suffering. It's a concise theological statement that shows clearly what we understand as we look back almost 2,000 years at this pinnacle event in God's eternal plan. Now, we have the luxury of Paul and Peter and John's thinking and their reflections as it was captured in their epistles to the early church. And this song says exactly what they said. For example, Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says this, God who made him who had no sin be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is indeed the power of the cross. Now, Mark spoke to the power of the cross just as plainly and clearly as Paul and Peter and John did, but he does so in a way that we might not immediately see because Mark makes the power of the cross an essential part of his narrative, of his story, by explicitly incorporating Old Testament references. And that is why we have seen Psalm 22 repeated a number of times already this morning and why I read portions of Psalm 22 after Mark's passage. So let's take a quick look at Psalm 22 and I would ask you to find this in your Bibles or in your devices and I can't help myself here but make this comment. Old-fashioned reading of books is very helpful when you're looking at a larger passage like a psalm. So I would encourage you in your Bible reading to do it in print rather than an iPhone where you only get two or three verses at a time. Now I'm going to help you out with the slides. Um, and if we could speak, uh, if we could flip, that's exactly the, the slide I'm looking for. Consider these comparisons in the gospel narratives of the cross to Psalm 22. We see scorn and mockery in verse 7. That's absolutely crystal clear in Mark's passage. We see passers-by wagging their heads in Psalm 22. 
Now, interestingly, when that psalm is translated into Greek, the same verb for wagging their heads is used by Mark when he writes verse 29. Let Yahweh deliver him. Now, these words are recorded in Matthew as what the passers-by say. Uh, Mark doesn't reflect it exactly the same way, but it's absolutely there in Matthew. Uh, Mark does not make clear that Jesus was nailed to the cross, but Matthew makes it absolutely clear that it was nails that put him on the cross. And Psalm 22 says that my feet and hands are pierced. And in verse 19 of Psalm 22, you see that they cast lots for his clothing. And in verse 24, they did the same thing in Mark 15. The parallels are unmistakable. And Mark, together with the other gospel writers, are hardly going out on a spiritual limb here, drawing this comparison, because our Lord himself on the cross cries out using the first words of this psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Could it be that in Jesus' greatest hour of spiritual pain and torment, he was expressing his grief and agony, but was also pointing us to the power of the cross as set out in this psalm. I would submit the answer is yes, given the fact that our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and I believe that he inspired David in the writing of Psalm 22 to paint a picture of agony and suffering of the cross, but also a picture of its extraordinary power. Now, the first part of Psalm 22 is the cry and, and lament, and we've seen many of these verses used by Mark. In verses 19 and 21, we have the specific prayer of David that Jesus echoes. It is his prayer as well. And he prays, Yahweh, be not far from me. Come quickly to help me, deliver me, rescue me, save me. And does God answer Jesus' prayer? Well, you might be tempted to say no because Jesus is allowed to die. But the best translations of verse 21 read this way, from the horns of the wild ox, you have answered me. So already on the cross, Jesus is saying, God has answered him. His prayer has been answered. From that point forward in the psalm, verses 22 to the end, no more petition, no more lament, but instead joy and praise. Now, if we have any doubt that Psalm 22 is just, the, just as much the words of Jesus as they are of David, the writer of Hebrews makes this crystal clear. And Steve, thank you for pointing this out at the top of the service. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, we read, the one who makes people holy referring to Jesus, and those who are made holy, referring to us, uh, are of the same family. Jesus is not ashamed to call them, again referring to us, brothers and sisters. He says, and look at Psalm 22, verse 22, as I read from Hebrews, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly, I will sing your praises. This, according to scripture, is Jesus our Savior saying that I will declare God's holy name to whom? 
to those he has made holy by virtue of his death. To us, he declares God's holy name and sings God's praises. So for the writer of Hebrews and for Mark, Jesus sings the praises that appear in Psalm 22. I just have to wonder, is Jesus a tenor or a bass? He sings the praises of his Father. Let's look specifically at some of these praises. Uh, First, in verse 24, Jesus says that God has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one, referring to himself on the cross. He has not hidden his face from him, but instead has listened to his cry for for help. And God indeed heard Jesus' prayer on the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For in God's power, Jesus was raised again to life, as Paul wrote in Philippians 2. God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Secondly, as a result of God's answer to Jesus' prayer, verse 27 tells us that all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. The way in which God responded to Jesus' affliction becomes the means through which all nations and families bow before God. In other words, the affliction, the death of Jesus, and his resurrection are the mechanism through which all nations and families are reconciled to God. And finally, in verse 30, 31, we see that future generations will be told about the Lord. Jesus says that future generations will see and hear, proclaiming his righteousness and declaring to a people unborn that he has done it. Were those future generations? We have been told about the Lord. We've been told about our God's righteousness. He has, he has done it. God has rescued his afflicted son, resurrected him to new life, and exalted him to the highest place, and given him the name above all names. Mark indeed understood the power of the cross. He incorporated Psalm 22 in his narrative to point us to God's completed work. And by doing this, his readers grasped that God allowed Jesus to suffer on our behalf, that he was subsequently exalted and saved and glorified, and that all the world would see God's action on the cross and turn to the Lord, not just in the Roman world that Mark knew, but in future generations and people yet to be born, they would also come to understand the righteousness of God. And this is the point of the cross and the good news of the gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor present, nor future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us 
from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we bow before you this morning in awe of your great love, shown to us by the giving of your one and only Son on our behalf. We cannot fathom the depth of your mercy and grace. We do not understand why you have lavished this great love upon us. We can only praise you and join you in singing praise to the Father in humility and thanksgiving. Lord, we pray that if any are searching for your love, that even this morning they would be moved by your message of forgiveness, that they would come this day to the foot of the cross and see your arms outstretched, bruised, bloody, beaten for our sake and for the salvation of all who would look upon you and believe. Lord, we praise you for your greatness and for your provision for our sin in Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.